These days, having versatile clothing you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits into your life and is made to last. Plus, with an impressive selection of staples to choose from, there's something for everyone. And it's all made right here in the USA. Find your new wardrobe staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code WA23. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am your host, Tim. I just want to say, if this is your first time listening, thank you so much for listening. It is such an honor and privilege to have your ears listening or your eyes watching this podcast episode. I know that there are so many other episodes and amazing shows that you could be listening to. So the fact that you took out time to listen to ours really means a lot. Thank you for being here. On this episode of the podcast, I have David Morris. And David Morris just released a book called Lost Faith and Wandering Souls, A Psychology of Disillusionment, Mourning, and the Return of Hope. Him and I talk a lot about the psychological offense, uh, offense, the psychological effects of deconstructing your faith, what that means, and all the layers that go into this. I really appreciated David's perspective. Uh, it, it was really helpful to have him kind of shed light on more of the psychological aspect of what's happening to your brain mentally. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. That being said, I want to give two shout outs to our sponsors of today's episode. First is Mad Priest Coffee. They are a great local roastery located in Chattanooga, Tennessee, doing great work, that, and they also make amazing coffee, so you have the best of both worlds. They poke a lot of fun at evangelical culture and their branding, but more importantly, they do very important work. They resist Christian nationalism. They, they, they create campaigns trying to bring awareness to social issues that we're trying to fight for, um, for change in, such as immigration reform, drug reform, and of course, resisting Christian nationalism. If you go to their website, madpriestcoffee.com, and you type in TNE20, in the checkout, you will get 20% off your order. So make sure you do that. They are great partners of the show and we love having them on board. The second thing is that the New Evangelicals is going to Theology Nerds Beer Camp God Pod Edition hosted by Trip 4, October 13th through 15th. It's going to be an amazing time. There's some amazing podcasts that are going to be there. There's some amazing um, scholars that are going to be there. Peter Enns will be there. Trip 4, Diana Butler-Bass, Brian McLaren, etc. It's going to be an amazing time. If you go to the link in our show notes and type in TNE in the checkout, you will get $50 off your ticket. And that $50 that you get a discount on goes to us, thanks to Trip 4, which is super cool. So it's a great way to help us cover our costs of getting down there. And lastly, I do want to say a sincere thank you to everyone who supports the work that we do. As many of you know, we are a nonprofit organization. What that means is that we don't charge for anything. We don't do Patreon accounts. We don't do paywalls for extra bonus content. It's all available to the community for free. How do we do this? Because people like you donate. So this is a humble ask. Can you? Would you consider giving to New Evangelicals? We are, like I said, a nonprofit. It is tax deductible and it helps us do our work. It helps us produce podcasts. 
podcast content, response videos, uh, Instagram content, TikTok content. It helps us host community events. Like our, our uh, last month, we did a community lunch in my area, and it helps us plan for the future. So if you go to the link in our show notes, you can give there a one-time donation or a monthly donation helps us out so much. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. David Morris. Have a great day. Well, Dr. David Morris, it is honestly um, very cool to have you on the show. You reached out to me and sent me kind of what you're doing in the book that you wrote, Lost Faith and Wondering Souls, A Psychology of Disillusionment, Mourning, and the Return of Hope, which I was like, huh, this might fit in pretty well for our community. <laughs> so you kind of hit so. all, all of the big uh, points there. So looking forward to getting into your book. But first and most importantly, thank you for making time. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. I appreciate the work you're doing. You're doing some serious stuff. You set up yourself as a nonprofit. Huh. I, I'm really, I'm really digging how you're trying to create so much structure around what you're doing. We're trying, you know, I mean, we are definitely the poor man's nonprofit, but we are surviving and we are doing it. And, you know, the work is definitely, um, you know, it, it can be emotionally taxing at times, but honestly, it does overall give me life. I don't know why. Maybe we can get, dig into well that. Said. Why psychologically I'm, I'm, I'm driven by this, but, um, you know, before we kind of get into that, I would love to kind of hear some of your story. What what brought you to the point of writing a book called Lost Faith and Wandering Souls? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll try to give you the quick history. I grew up yeah, as sure. a pastor's kid, um, uh, pretty conservative, um, you know, but not necessarily aware that it was conservative in the, in the 1960s, uh, then Southern California in the 1970s. Um, you know, I was sort of like the good preacher's kid. Uh -huh. Um, and, and I didn't even know it, honestly. I mean, it was just kind of like playing by the rules. And, um, I, I grew up in the time when, um, there were hippies in the seventies and, the, and that's what we called them. Then it doesn't sound like a good word today, but that's what we, that's what they were called then. Sure. And they, and they would become the other great word, Jesus freaks, you know, and they, they would, they would go into the ocean, get baptized. I remember watching that happen in Costa Mesa mm. and, um, you know, my experience of it, I, I remember vividly just hearing that sort of uh, Christian evangelical crisis transformation story over and over again, how, you know, I was this horrible person and then I found Jesus and and I, I've repented and everything's great now and I'm this wonderful person. And it was it was weird. I mean, even as a, I, and I don't think this is just me in particular, I yeah. think it's somewhat of the phenomenon of the evangelical culture we're in is this this shift that we can make suddenly we become a new creation and suddenly we're someone totally different. We were that we now we're this. And as a kid, even as a five-year-old, I could see that I could, I was like, I've heard, I keep hearing this over and over again and I don't always believe it. If that right. makes sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you yeah. grew up in that way. So where did you go from there? I mean, did, did you maintain your faith all the way through your uh, adolescence and, and early adulthood? Um, more or less, I would say we we moved from Southern California to Northern Virginia, which was the outskirts of uh, the Washington, D.C. area. And that the evangelicalism there, at least at the time, just was not the same. We joined a Southern Baptist church, but it was not quite the same thing. My dad had gotten a job uh, working in Northern Virginia. And, uh, you know, I, I think I went to youth group at, at this at this church for a while. And uh, but but still, it wasn't always as as tightly knit. As, as it might have been. And I just got more, you know, 
I, I fell into more of like just general culture. And uh, I mean, make a long story short, I ended up in college and studied, decided to study psychologists. My dad was a Christian counselor at that point in time. I said, yeah. I want to study psychology too. Right. And um, I would say, you know, I would say, Tim, I kind of got out of the evangelical culture for a while. Like I missed the whole like uh, 80s evangelical culture and some of the 90s, like the purity culture stuff. I, I didn't get hit with that like like so many others. Mm. Um, and it was it was good. I mean, in a way, we were kind of like out of our community, you know? Yeah. And that sense, of, I think that sense of loss was already sort of kicking in. Uh, because so much of of our religious culture is about creating community. Yeah, and so I would say in college, I, I you know I started digging in deep into into psychology, and I was more into like the philosophical side of it than I yeah. was the experimental clinical side. Sure. Um, and I took courses on religion. I couldn't get away from it. I ended up getting a religion minor. Mm. And uh, I say in my book, I say uh, I lost my faith twice. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a, of a literary device to try to just sort of describe that process of uh, how we relate to our faith. It, 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 it can go in cycles. Um, and I just kind of followed my, you know, I followed my studies, my brain kind of out of, out of evangelicalism and started seeing like this wider perspective. And it, and it was, it was, it was kind of exhilarating to be honest with you, to be reading, um, you know, William James in a philosophy class, or to uh, just learn about counseling psychology and Carl Rogers and uh, Albert Ellis and rational emotive therapy, and just understanding that there's other ways to describe our inner life that was kind of had always been the domain of religion. Yeah, um, you do mention, you know, in the preface of the book that, that like you said, you you lost your faith twice, so to speak. And can you kind of give because you know you're you you were in the 1960s, so you're a little bit older than I am, and probably most of the audience out there. But I think it's important to realize for the audience that 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 the idea of losing one's faith or or, or like you said, having cycles is not unique to just people who are maybe in their early 30s or you know late late 20s. It really expands beyond that. Can you kind of describe? Um, maybe what what those two cycles were and what led to to you having those moments? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things one of the things I say often, just to kind of dip into the theoretical psychological side of things, too, is that a faith crisis isn't something that is just uh, the domain of someone in their twenties. Um, yeah. It's often seen psychologically in terms of stages of faith that. Well, you know, in your late teens, early 20s, that's when you have this kind of crisis. What, what I studied in, in my program once I got to grad school and, uh, you know, I was in this very interdisciplinary program is, is that you get to see that it's also a product of social forces, hmm. historical forces, cultural forces. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the deconstruction movement we're in right now, and I'm sure you've experienced this. It will surprise you sometimes. You'll be talking to someone who's much older and like, oh, they're feeling it too. Totally. Well, that's that's because we're all in this same soup. But uh, one one of the theorists I love to follow, um, Eric Erickson, he would say that people in their 20s are always working the hardest to solve the problem of the time. Huh. And that's why so many, I think, who are who are in their 20s or 30s, are, are much more vocal and actually probably articulating things more clearly, uh, more forcefully 
than than maybe the the, the other generations that, that we all live around. But um, yeah, for me, I mean, just just in my own story, um, you know, I kind of just felt like it wasn't it wasn't just like a philosophical theological thing. I kind of felt like um, I, I was just told a lot of things that just shut me down, yeah. and I wasn't allowed to think. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't allowed to have a sense of self-agency. Right. right. Um, exactly. And I started picking, I started picking up on that. And then I went into my graduate studies work and, um, you know, I studied, I, I focused on what happens, what's the inner journey that you experience when you lose your faith and how do you find your way? I used to say back now, I kind of say more, it's more like how you find your way forward. Yes. Um, and the, and this, you know, so I kind of thought I'd had, I had had a lot of things figured out, <clears throat> which I can talk about. Um, you know, I'd studied some of the steps involved in 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 overcoming an absolutist faith, I like to call it. And uh, I studied, I put these spiritual memoirs on the couch. So the book isn't purely theoretical. You can read some uh, spiritual memoirs that are, uh, you know, pretty easily accessible. And I, I kind of knew that there's things that you got to do. You got to, you got to take, you got to take control of your own journey. Uh, you maybe even got to take some time teaching. Yeah. Um, you got to find a sense of play and creativity. Uh, so I thought that I could do all that. And we, my wife and I, <clears throat> even though she grew up Catholic and I grew up Baptist more or less, yeah. we ended up raising our kids in a Methodist church, which was very safe. Right. You know, uh, it was, it was in, in Northern New Jersey and there wasn't just, it wasn't such a heavy focus on theology and right theology. Um, but it was a focus on, on togetherness and, and compassion and love and service and liturgy. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, we, we did all that, but then I got this job working for, you know, I, I work in publishing. And I'm trying to I'm trying to grow in my professional career. I'm trying to support my family. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> it was a great opportunity to it seemed to go work for an evangelical publishing house, Sondervan, which is where I ended up working. I was the publisher uh, for um, their adult their nonfiction line. So all the big pastor names. Rob Bell, all, did you publish Love Wins? Uh, well, that was before my time. Before your time, okay. Before my time, he was he was he was ostensibly kicked out by yeah, that time. Right. Yeah. right, that's correct. We were there for that. <laughs> uh, that that's exactly what happened. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so so I I you know as an as a publisher of of this evangelical house, I, I thought, well, let me let me try one of the churches in Grand Rapids. There's plenty to choose from here, by the way. Totally. Um, lots of radio stations too, Christian radio stations. Yep. And um, uh, so we wound up at a church that seemed that seemed a little bit more progressive. They actually allowed women pastors. Um, but it was weird. It was just a weird experience. Uh, we made some good friends there. We enjoyed the pastor. Um, I mean, I won't get into too much of the details, but honestly, it, it, you know, we never really felt at home there. And there was this weird thing that kept happening too. We were there for five years and, and up until even the very end, we kept getting asked, Hey, are you new here? Mm. And it's like, well, no, we've been kind of sitting in this same area. Maybe we change whether we go to the eight 30 or the, or the 11 o'clock or 10 30 service. Yeah, but we're you know we're we're still here. We've kind of been involved in some things outside the church, but there was just this sense of you know, 
first off, you didn't really try to get to know us in the first place. And we've been here all along and it just felt a little bit artificial. Secondly, it was kind of like, wow, okay, well, I guess we're your Christian project, even though we've been here all this time. And that that was just kind of a, a strange off-putting feeling. But right. the thing that really got to us was we'd gotten to know uh, the former pastor of the church who had been there um, for decades. He started the church in, the, in that particular location. Um, one of these people who ju- you just want to be around, they're older, they're wiser, uh, just someone like, I want to spend time with this person. And we'd gotten to know them just a little bit. Um, both he and his wife, we'd shared one meal together, been in a couple of group meetings together. Um, and the, the thing that happened with him was that he officiated at his son's wedding, being married, his son being married to his husband. Hmm. And at, at, over a period of months, even years, the denomination just said, we're revoking your ordination. Wow. Wow. Now this is a guy who, who had given his life to this church, to this denomination. He's known to this denomination. And um, they said, no, thank you. You're not wanted anymore. And then think too, of the experience of, of his son who was probably raised in this church spiritually yeah. uh, cultivated and raised in this church. And they say, you can't, you can't enjoy, or you can't, um, you can't experience in the Catholic church, what they call the sacrament of marriage. You can't, you can't go, we won't bless you in your ongoing spiritual development, which kind of in a way marriage is a spiritual development in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just something for me to see just the pain that this pastor went through the anger that I saw in his wife too. Um, you know, when you're in the age, when you're in your seventies, and this is something I've studied, like what you can study in terms of life stage development, it's supposed to be a time of generativity, a time of giving back, a time of, of, of integrity and, and helping others, not a time of being angry and being kicked out of your spiritual home. And I just found that egregious, psychologically speaking, just egregious. Well, thank I'll you pause for there. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> Thanks for sharing all that. You know, again, I think it's important that people hear that these stories are happening in all different contexts. You know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people, including myself, have stories similar where it's just kind of like, yeah, I was I was at a place for five, six years giving everything. People thought I was new to the church or whatever it was, and then something happened or something happened to, to me or to someone else. Um, anyway, you know, so one of the questions that I did want to kind of dive into about this is, you mentioned that there are social, historical, and cultural forces, forces, all at play that kind of form this soup that all of us are kind of swimming in. Absolutely. Can you yeah. unpack how those things intersect on the psyche? You know, like like how 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 is the social, historical, cultural forces kind of intersecting on the mind in this in this world of like deconstruction and losing faith? Yeah. What are you seeing yeah. there on like a psychological level? It's it's a big big topic. Um, I would just say that uh, we, we as human beings are so extraordinarily socially determined. Mm. Um, you know, our, our, the, the language that we use, the words that are popular, um, the ideas and the attitudes that are floating around, whether they're religious or not, um, the attachment we have to uh, physical things, 
Um, I mean, one of the things that, that we really love to avoid is, is analyses based on class. Yeah. You know, who, who gets to define, who gets to define what's real, who gets to define what's right and what's wrong. Right. Um, and I, you know, one of the things in my own, um, graduate education that was kind of missing was a historical, um, anal- a historical study of American religion, hmm. um, American religious history. And, uh, what, one of the things that um, in some of the psychological theorists I follow, they're, they're really good. Some of them are really good at connecting up how these historical factors impact uh, the way we think and who we are and how we develop. So just think about, think about um, America in its early colonial days. And you have these Puritans who come over on the boat to the Massachusetts and they form the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it's uh, Winthrop, uh, Jonathan Winthrop is the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This group of people who left Europe because they weren't religious enough and they weren't being allowed to uh, practice their religion in the way they wanted to. They wanted, right. they wanted religious freedom, which is a very core element of our of First Amendment, um, non-interference of government in religion. And, and Lo, you know, lo and behold, over time, someone named Ann Hutchinson comes along, a woman who says, I want to hold prayer meetings in my house. It's getting really super popular. She's communicating directly with God in these prayer meetings. There's a lot of fervor in it. And Jonathan Winthrop, who you'd think is a revolutionary trying to create freedom and religious freedom, clamps down on Ann Hutchinson. And to me, that is, that is the religious DNA that we inherited inherited in america yeah and that's why there is um there's just this ongoing like church splitting church splitting church splitting that goes on yeah there's this individualistic ideology that we don't see in our theologies in our bible studies in our church gatherings where it's me and god it's me and the bible I was listening to your podcast with Brandon Robinson recently, mm. and he talked about how it, it's almost crazy that everyday people feel like they can just become experts on what the Bible says when it's such a vast, rich, complicated, historical document. Yeah. But I, I guess I would just say that, that, um, that we don't, we, we just, we don't always realize just how impactful, um, our culture is like, like the non-interference of, of government in religion. That's created this incredible marketplace of religion in the United States. Right. All these denominations, you can't even keep them straight. You know, people will talk about, you know, you're this, you're that, you're the other and, and, and create all these, uh, the, all these sense, the sense of difference. And it's really hard. It's really hard to keep up with it. Um, I'd much rather kind of like go hang out in like secular Europe sometimes just so like, I need a break. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's yeah. a lot of sense. I mean, it is interesting because um, I think that a lot of us are trying to understand our historical moment better. You know, like I'm sure you're familiar with the book, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. Uh, that really puts sure. a little bit of like uh, meat to the skeleton of what we're, what we're swimming in. Uh, we talk a lot about um, ingredients. That's how I kind of frame things. Like you know, and, and and when it comes to people who are deconstruction or deconstructing, again, that's a very big term. I, I it's more of an explosion, not really a movement. People are going all different directions. But the people who really um, 
participate in our community, most of them are having a crisis of theology, not of faith, right? Where it's not really a matter of, oh, do I want to leave Christianity or do I want to not, you know, do I, do I not believe in God anymore? It's more of, what do I believe about Jesus? What do I believe about God? And we have, I, I can give people the, the theological ingredients. Hey, here's some of the big ones, you know, hell, the queer, the queer community, how we handle that, et cetera. On a psychological level, what are some of the ingredients that 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 you're seeing that go into someone who becomes and starts to kind of deconstruct, right? Uh, starts to lose their faith. What are what are you from from, from like a, a a mental picture here? What are some of those pieces that kind of go into that 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 maybe you found? Uh, well, sort of the the main point of main thesis of my book is that we go through a mourning process. There's yeah. a, there's a strong, strong sense of loss. You know, these, these, these um, symbols of our faith or even things like original sin and hell and uh, what the Bible might say about a social issue yeah, uh, such as race or sexuality or gender. Sure. You know, those are, those are actually uh, religious symbols that we become emotionally attached to. That's part of what faith is. Faith is, is um, you know, faith is a psychological act, first and foremost. It's an act of putting trust in something. So I think one of the, one of the salient features of deconstructing is just that sense of loss, a sense of depression. Um, and, you know, and what comes with that is uh, loneliness, actually. Um, one of the things I've noticed in, in book publishing where I work is everybody wants to publish a book about their, their, their loss of faith journey, their uh, a loss of faith memoir. And um, there's this sense of, well, no one else has heard this story before. And there really are a lot of people who are just kind of wandering out there with no, with no connection, no one to support them in this journey. Right. But I also feel as though if we just all organized a little bit, you know, even with doing the work that you're doing with the podcast, we'd find out, oh, you know, we're not so different from each other. Right. Uh, but that sense of losing your faith in your community, you tend to turn it inward on yourself as though it's your fault. That mm-hmm. that is a very normal thing to do: is to turn it, turn turn the blame on yourself for why you're not in your in your faith anymore. You know, on one hand, you're rejecting perhaps where you were, and you know you need to do that in a healthy way. But psychologically, we kind of tend to get into this recrimination mode. And, and so that's, I think that's part of the early phase of, of walking away from faith. What do you think, though, that is kind of like that first domino um, on like a psychological level that makes people go, huh, do I really believe this? You know, like, for example, I, I think about when I was younger, how I, in my late teens, early 20s, even mid-20s, was very fanatical about, you know, I want to understand the gospel. I want to have that, that sense of knowing truth, et cetera. And over time, questions that I would ask kind of led me down this path of where I am now. And all of a sudden, I step into this world of what's called deconstruction. Turns out, like you said, I'm not alone. A lot of us are, are rethinking it. But what I'm curious to think to know is, like, psychologically, what what is happening that is leading people to even ask those questions in the first place that then kind of causes them to start saying, oh my gosh, what I grew up in was, you know, I didn't know at the time, but was hyper-fundamentalist or like was not sustainable for me long-term. What are some of those pieces that maybe you've seen in, in, in some of your work? Well, I think, I think life is all about a sense of discovery and growing and learning. 
Yeah. And you can come to a point where um, your faith community might tell you that, you know, what you're learning isn't, isn't real. It isn't right. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was reading psychology, psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, who's been called a pervert by, by right. some people in conservative circles. Um, I think, I think it's that sense of self-agency. You know, when you say, uh, what did you, what did you say? Like, what is that first trigger point? What is that point where you kind yeah, of go, like, you know, like, like what's that first domino for that you domino. think psychologically where someone's like, wait a second, like, what if, you know, something doesn't maybe feel as right. And I'm going to actually entertain that and maybe give a little more attention than I'm used to. Cause I mean, I, again, I just trying to relate it back, back to maybe <clears throat> my own story. I can think about times where maybe I had the thought, does God really predestine everyone to burn in hell forever? You know, besides a, a select few, like, like Calvinism. I believed that for a long time. I had that question, but I would kind of suppress it. But eventually right. I got to a point where I said, I got to find an answer to this question. Like, like, like something changed. I don't, I don't know what it was, but something changed yeah. in me that said, I, 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 the question is, it's too loud. I can't ignore it anymore. Is, is there, is there, anymore. Is there like, right. like a psychological development that is happening when, when that happens? How does that work? You think mentally? You know, to me, it's, I, I don't think it's, I think that's actual normal psychological progression. That's normal intellectual progression. And we're asked to kind of turn that off. And what, what to me, what triggers it, what can be the domino is social disruption. You know, you're no longer, you're no longer in the same church that you used to be in because we move around so much. Um, other things that can trigger it would be even church politics, you know, mm. when you, when you meet people behind the scenes and they're just not acting the way that, uh, you know, the way that you were taught Christians are supposed to act. And then it starts to, and then you just start to ask those questions. That self-agency starts to kick in um, just, just on a common sense level, real relational level. Um, I can't, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like for women who are abused by church leaders or, or others who are abused by church leaders and, and how that just suddenly turns your whole ideological framework or even someone who experiences loss, it makes you ask questions, where was God in all of this? And we're just so often asked to, to shut down and not get angry at God and not ask those questions. To me, it's it's not so much um it's not so much psychological development or intellectual development. It's more a question of finding a faith that allows you to be who you are. Okay, let's Seems like everyone's in a hurry these days. At Popeyes, we make our chicken on grandma time. You think grandma rushes good cooking? You've got a second thing coming, and it's a made with love chicken sandwich. We marinate our chicken for 12 hours, hand batter and bread it, and serve it up as a slice of heaven sandwich. Because we were raised to believe that if you're gonna make something, make it right, and then put a pickle on it. We don't make sense, we make chicken. Love that chicken from Popeyes. Even long weekends are short, so why spend a second of this one on a drink run? Instead, get drinks delivered right to your door with Drizzly. Drizzly is the easiest way to find the best prices on beer, wine, and spirits, so you can get back to lighting those totally legal fireworks. Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Because the long weekend will be over before this ad is. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. 
pause there because I, th- I think that's a very important point that you made that we have to unpack for a few minutes. So you made the comment that, again, let, let's just bring it back to my story because that's who you're talking to, right? I had this moment where I said, I, I have to find an answer to this question. You know, I was taught that God is sovereignly before the foundations of the world, you know, predestining some people for heaven and most to hell. And eventually I had to find a better answer than that's just how it is. And what you said is that that's a normal intellectual progression. So what that makes me think about is that the spaces I was in were intellectually suppressing or like even like maybe like 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 suppressing progressive just normal 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 mental progression for the sake of maybe like religious dogma for example. I don't know, I'm just kind of saying it out loud. So one of my questions then is why are these spaces so successful? In so many ways, you know, like like evangelicalism, yeah. as we know yeah. it, is is a very well funded, very powerful, um, very influential group. I mean, they really have potential to swing elections. They they are well, like I said, they're well funded. They have we have entire industries devoted to them, and people really they are really attracted to like the Sunday morning event to kind of finding purpose. So. If if there is definitely a sense, and this is not a new thing, but you know, if there is an anti-intellectual kind of bent to some of this, you know, um, theology and some of this worldview, why do people get attracted to it, and why do they stay with it? Uh, for me, it comes down to a sense of identity and culture, and a sense of uh, being cut off from who we are. The United States is a very affluent country. Um, we're a young country. Um, we, uh, you know, when I like, I like to think of like, I have, I have ancestors who emigrated as Catholics from Switzerland and I've done a little research to find this little tiny village that they live in the Swiss Alps. And, and just, you know, I, there's, there's a couple of YouTube videos. You can find everything out there now in these days. It's awesome. Yeah, um, it is. And, uh, there's like this YouTube video of them like marching on, on a certain day. There's like a parade and they all march into the church together and they interview some of the people and they just seem at, at comfortable in their own skin. But here in the United States, we've, we've got this mass culture world that we live in. Uh, we consume things all, you know, we, we speak kind of the same language. We, we consume things in, in certain ways we only listen to certain kinds of music, although that's exploded now with the segmentation that we're allowed to have with digital, with the digital marketplace. Right. Um, some of the theorists I follow, they talk about it's the loss of common culture. We don't have that sort of social glue that we used to have. So we're desperate for it. Mm. We're desperate for it. So especially in uh, what some sociologists of religion call placeless suburbia, where it's just featureless. Yeah, and um, homogenized. Um, yeah, so I I feel like that's why we come up with such rigid ideologies is because we're looking for a sense of home. We're looking for a sense of belonging, and it's really hard to pull that off in such a mobile, transient, you know, class-oriented culture. On 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 the I, I, you have to forgive me. I know so little about psychology, so if I'm going to butcher some words here, just you no, know, no, that's just, okay. Uh, just just <laughs> bear with me. But I'm assuming there's like a hierarchy of needs that humans have, from like you know most important to least important. On on that scale, you know where where does like um 
where does belonging fit versus like maybe like intellectual knowledge, right? Because it seems like what you're saying is that is that while maybe these spaces are in, in a lot of ways repressive as far as how they progress someone's train of thought or even how they expose them to the complicated world that we live in, they will sacrifice that for the sense of belonging or a sense of community yeah. or a sense of you know broader purpose. So is that is that because it's 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 like a higher need on the hierarchy scale, so to speak, for humans to have that sense of belonging over maybe you know more knowledge or or just more awareness of the world around them. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The need to belong, the fact that we're meaning seeking individuals and human beings, the need to belong is far more powerful. Uh-huh. Then even sometimes those lower needs on Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If anybody wants to look it up, don't ask me to quote it right now. But <laughs> okay. but yeah, it's you know that's why that's why sometimes you know religion can be one of the most powerful things in motivating you uh, to ignore some of your needs. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Without and, a doubt. And maybe that's why. So I'm just kind of putting things together in the moment with you as we're discussing this, but. Maybe that's why, like, I was thinking about the Sunday morning event. You know, I grew up going to church on Sunday morning, and and they use words like your family here, your community here. I have found that overall those words are lacking and that they usually come with 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 a lot of strings attached. You know, your family, mm-hmm. as long as you believe the right things. You're, 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 we're in community as long as you serve all the time. But again, one of the needs that, that those things fill is at least at minimum the illusion of belonging, even if you never really did, right? Even even if, right. if when it comes down to it, when your whole self was exposed, right, and you were honest with someone, and, and it turns out you were then kicked out, you at least had the illusion up until that point that you were part of the family. Do you yeah. think that's yeah. part of why they're so successful in that way? I, I think that's a need that people really that it, that's why they that's why it works so well because they're. You know, there is such a strong need. There is such a pull. Um, yeah, family is, that's what we're looking for. I mean, it, it's, we have a loneliness epidemic in the United States. Yeah. Um, too many people are just cut off from each other. Um, it, it, you know, we don't hang out together, like, especially like we used to. Um, there's the, the Republican senator from um, uh, Nebraska. I'm going to forget his name, but he wrote this book called Them, Why We Hate Each Other. And he, he he does it's like sociological analysis it's kind of it's kind of good he's he's more of a centrist republican mm. um and he talks about how we no longer have the friday night basketball game where where the plumber and the executive you know the person on this side of the tracks the person on that side of the tracks all got together and shared something in common at the friday night basketball game um that need is so important. And we seem to have that less so in the digital marketplace that we live in right now. And that in a way is why I think too, things have become so much more, uh, you know, heated and uh, so much more polarized. Well, I'm wondering along the same school of thought here, I'm wondering if that's why so many people are so vocal about maybe uh, critiquing the church because they discovered that it was an illusion and that's almost even more painful. Right to to yeah. feel like oh I I was I I believed it right like I gave everything to this church I was called yeah. family I was told that that we stick together turns out then I discovered the underside and I was kicked out or it turns out my pastor was abusing people whatever it is and I'm wondering if 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 that's why the reaction and why there's such a loud 
um, vocal group of people, including myself, who are like, hey, you know, there's a problem here. I'm wondering if, if that's part of what's fueling, you know, um, our our motives, right? Because because we we fully bought in and discovered that in our case, maybe not everyone's, but in our case, what we thought was true was really a mirage. And now we're really right. hurt by that. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, that sense of betrayal is just really something. The bottom just seems to to fall out. One of the things I'm curious yes. about, though, is why does it seem to be happening now in this time that we're in right now? I mean, obviously, we know about how politicized everything everything became. But what, why is it that that so many of us are finding that the church has become more sharp-edged? Yeah, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, a, a ton. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll try. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll answer on this one for a few minutes here and get your thoughts on my thoughts. Um, but I think there are a few major ingredients. I think first off, social media is a big deal. People are finding each other in new ways. Um, there are are all these accounts. You know, I'm yeah. one of them, but there are other ones too that have been doing this work for before I was a thing. Um, who have been just seeking people. Hey, have you had this experience? And social media allows people to really find even more like, um, um, you know, um, unique uh, groups of people, right? Like, uh, like for example, right? I'm not sure if you're aware of this thing, but there's this, there's this really small group of people. They're called bronies. They are men who love My Little Pony, okay? And <laughs> it's a real thing. They're called bronies. Now, they don't really that, – that movement exploded – because the internet helped them find each other. Same thing with even like even like 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 the flat earth conspiracy theory, right? The internet yeah, really helped yeah. people find each other. So I think that's a big right. part of it. I think the other thing is a lot so, of us And so that oh, so that's a good thing too. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a good thing. Yes. I think it's a even good though thing. even though there's like some fragmentation and segmentation that comes with that. That sense of we're we're all kind of Yes. Yeah. I mean yes. people complain about social media, but yet certain folk certain folks have been able to find each other and create new narratives yeah, yeah, or affirm the narratives that they were already living as opposed to this mass culture. That's right. Now, of course, we, we, we both know there's a, definitely a shadow side of social media that is for maybe a different discussion. But yes, one of the good things about social media is that people who felt like, well, maybe maybe what I'm seeing isn't real are like, oh no, I, I was being gaslit. Like I, this experience was not only my own experience. So I think that that's, that's one big yeah. part of it. Yep, I, think, yep. I think the other big part is we have to understand exactly how polarizing uh, Trump was. Um, you know, I mean, that that is a massive, maybe one of the biggest pieces to all of this, because at least in my case, what I discovered, and I think this is, a, I think this is such an important distinction, is that people I grew up with, that I shared the same beliefs with, I assumed we had the same values. And when Trump came along, he showed that that was not the case, right? So all of a sudden, I'm like, wait a second, you assume because we're both Jesus people, because we, we, we both go to the same church, we affirm most of the same theology, that we're going to share the same values as well. And all of a sudden, the people who are telling me about, you know, when, when I was a child, for example, how important it is to save sex for marriage between me and my wife only, now they're telling me to vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy. And I'm like, wait a second, the value is not, I thought we were in sync here, but this value yeah. is not. So I, I think Trump really exposed the 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 value difference between Christians that shared the same beliefs. And that's a very important distinction, I think, that I've only recently discovered after I talked to um, um, Andrew Seidel, and he's, he's a constitutional lawyer. He points out how beliefs and values can be different. Um, and so I think that I think that was, in my view, I think that's one of the biggest things. And, and how it continues. I mean, 
you know, I, I follow people who are still pushing election fraud as Christians. Um, I see who platforms them. I, I see that. And I go, guys, I don't understand. I don't understand how this is a thing. And so I think that only continues to fuel the divide because I'm watching um, people like Charlie Kirk, for example, who's a pretty far right political pundit. He's not speaking at churches. He's being invited to speak at large mega churches, not not tiny little churches in Alabama. Yeah, He's speaking yeah, at yeah. Dream City in Arizona. That's twenty five thousand people. He's speaking at uh, Charlie Jack Hibbs uh, Church in California. That's several thousand people. So to see these really weird um, consolidations of like far right, I would argue almost yeah. fascist ideology being welcomed in, in, in predominantly white evangelical spaces only continues to fuel how different our values really are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it almost in a way it's just, it's the, it's the fact that we can connect with each other online more, but then there's also gotta be other things underneath the surface that are causing us to uh, form these identities. Yeah. Um, let's, let's just say, let's just, let's just take, keep it with the political identities at the moment. Sure. You know why? I mean, there's even like people, you know, our family, our own family members are viewing things very differently than we would have before. Yeah. And I think we're, I'm sorry. I think we're in a, we're kind of in a, kind of in a boiling over point where the, the American dream has has fractured it's fallen apart it's not one dream it's more like a number of dreams and and trump was as much as he's caused a lot of things he's also been an opportunist totally for the, for their fervor that's for the for the issues that are going on right now and and that's that's what i feel like we also need to um really i don't know i don't know what the answer is but a lot of it is you know you can't, we can't just go back to the 1950s and have this sort of white monoculture that was propped up so much by evangelicalism. That's right. Um, we have, we have to be able to let in more different kinds of narratives and more identities. And our religion has just been kind of unable to do that. It's been unable to adjust to that. Well, I think one other part of this that you kind of hit on that maybe we should explore for a few minutes together is you mentioned like how even like the socioeconomic position, you know, that so many of us are in. So for example, I grew up on a steady diet of Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity. I mean, my, my dad was a blue collar worker. I go to work with him painting rooms all day, you know, doing construction. And that's what he had on. And I remember listening to people like them advocate for why the affordable healthcare act was socialism, right? Things like that. And now being 33, having three kids or uh, two kids, I look at my life and I go, I don't understand why the people that I grew up listening to who were, who were Republican were so opposed to things like that that make complete sense. Like the fact that that people go into debt for their health care is crazy to me. The fact that yes. we live in 2022 yeah. and the cost of going to college will put you into, in a lot of cases, a six-figure debt. You know, right. and it wasn't always while you're, while that you're way. making $30,000 a year. Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, to be transparent with you, before I even started this work, not that we make much money now, we survived, but I was looking for jobs, right? And I was looking at all different kinds of places. The places that were hiring were like, you need to have a bachelor's or master's degree. It pays $40,000. i am like, first off, I don't have either of those things. Also, if I did, I need more money than $40,000 a year to live in New Jersey just, just comfortably. I mean, yeah. forget being rich just to pay the mortgage. Yeah. So I think there is this other economic side of things too that maybe we don't, we don't talk about as often that really fuels this side of like, 
I don't understand why in the world's quote unquote greatest country and also the world's richest country, we own 30% of the world's wealth with 8% of the world's population. Why people who work 40 hours a week are told, sorry, Amazon should not pay a livable wage, just get a better job. It's like, that is not sustainable. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how this, that's not how life works, right? And so I think that's also another, I don't talk about that a whole lot on the podcast or even on the account, but that's a very important part of this too that I think fuels that sense of instability. Like a lot of us kind of feel screwed over. You know, like, are yeah. you kidding me? Like, I can't get affordable health care. That is nuts for my for, for yeah. my six-week-old, you know? So it is very frustrating, I think, to have those kinds of things happening on top of the Trump stuff, on top of the religious fundamentalism of, oh, you're a heretic now. You believe that hell is an eternally conscious torment? You can't be a Christian anymore, which isn't even true. You know, like, there's, there's yeah. many ways to view that in Christian thought. So all those layers, I think, are really boiling over. And that's why a lot of us are so frustrated. Sorry for the rant yeah. there, but you asked. You know? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. And it's no, totally, totally. I mean, I think that's what gets at a lot of it right now, too. I, I mean, uh, you know, let's, I mean, we could, we could talk about race and Black Lives Matter. And without a doubt, there's, there's, a, a, um, you know, there's a racism that we don't realize. It's an unconscious thing. Hope, yeah. Racism is an unconscious thing. It's not yeah. something we're totally aware of. Mm. Um, people aren't comfortable when you talk about the unconscious or, or, or that there's things that we don't really know that we're aware of. Right. Um, but, but there's, you know, there's psychological tests that will prove to you, even some online that you can take that will show that you're, that, you know, you have, you carry some attitudes in you when you look at pictures of a white person or a picture of a person of color, how you'll respond differently uh, to those things. Yeah. And, um, and I think uh, that, you know, that, you know, even, even um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, we don't realize it, it's as much about, it's, it's as much about class too, as, as it is race. Totally. Um, I'm, I've just finished reading a book um, about the gospel according to, well, what's well, not what it's called, but it's called uh, Baptized in Dirty Water by Daniel White Hodge. He's got a really cool podcast called Profane Faith. Oh. And um, he, he talks about how uh, in the sixties, there was like this, uh, soul culture, the civil rights movement, um, where, where you had, you know, strong male leaders, church leaders in the black community that provided a sense of right and wrong. And we knew where we needed to go in terms of progression with regard to race issues. But then you came into this, the eighties and the nineties and it's what he called the post soul culture. And that's when hip hop grew up and became really popular. And that's where you have folks like Tupac Shakur saying there ain't no missionaries in the ghetto. Mm. You know, we're not, we're not, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's in such a world where it's like, even, even the church is failing the, uh, the people who are depicted in, in movies like boys in the hood. So um, I feel like, I feel like that is, is such a, a connection to our religious ideologies and our theologies are often there to sort of keep our sense of community with, with people who are willing to subscribe to it. And we don't realize there's a power and a class um, pull to that an yeah. element to it. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. So the last part of your book, is, you know, in, in, in the subtitle is dot, 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 and the return of hope. So let's talk yes. about that part. Well, we have a few minutes yeah. left. I mean, what, what does that look like? What is, 
a lot of people in our community, I think, in, that are kind of all over the spectrum. Some people are just walking into deconstruction for the first time, and they're feeling all the anxiety of like, what is up, what's down. Some people are in the thick of it, and they're getting more comfortable. Some are like, okay, I'm over white evangelicalism. I'm very hostile to it. You know, you know, burn the whole thing down. Yeah. What does the yeah. return of hope look like <laughs> for you, and and how you talk about it in the book? Well, it's a slow and painstaking process. That's one of the things we know about the mourning process. As I'm discovering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's one thing, it's one thing to mourn the loss of someone that you know and love, a physical person. Yeah. It's it's a very different thing. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's a different thing to mourn an ideal mm. and a in a community built around an ideal. Wow. Um mm, so, that's really powerful. So your your question is, you know, what how do we how do we find our way back to hope? You know, through some of those uh, psychological, specifically psychoanalytic theorists that I I look at, it's really a question of embracing the sadness and embracing the um, chaos and allowing it to come over you and to realize that it's there, acknowledging the sadness at least, mm. and and by acknowledging it even getting angry about it, mm. uh, even lashing out a little bit, you know, in safe spaces, hopefully. Yeah. Um, it, it helps you to um, act out against what's, what has let you down, what you felt betrayed by. Mm. And it helps you to, um, it, it helps, it helps you in that to not be numbed out by it and to not try to cover it up with a lot of manic behavior or a lot of, you know, you know, uh, ideologies that you try to re up with, you know, right. Um, instead just live in that disarray and, and then, and then see what happens. Um, let me just bring it to a very down to earth example. Uh, one of the, <laughs> one of the things I keep saying is I feel like people just need to stop reading the Bible for a little while. Mm. Just, just, just stop, just stop reading it, you know, because we bring so much baggage to that to that, uh, to that experience of reading the Bible. And if you, you know, if you actually do stop reading it, what might happen? Well, you pick it up again, you know, six months later, a year later, and wow, now I'm reading it with a whole fresh sense of curiosity that I never knew was there for me as a, as a student in college, when I was studying other world religions and reading the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita or, or, or Taoism, I read it with this sense of curiosity. What is this? What is this yeah. different way of thinking and, and acting? And, uh, and yet I've never been able to do that with my own tradition. And I feel like if you, yes. if you kind of step away from things, find that safe space, feel what you're feeling, acknowledge that things have not gone well with the way you've created these uh, religious community that you've known, and it's not working for you anymore. If you can, if you can give yourself time to do that, maybe even find some therapy too. Um, you'll actually start rekindling that sense of hope and um, for, for what's real. And you'll, you'll start meeting new people and you'll start getting this, this sense of moving forward. I love that. David, where can people find you? Are you online? Are you on social media? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm on, you can find me at davidrmorris.me. Um, David R. Morris. I, I am a publisher. I am a literary agent. I'm trying to focus on these, these sort of deconstruction space. Those are dissolution, looking for new ways of, of finding meaning. Hmm. Um, I used to be in publishing. I was in major 
major publishing and now I'm in more of a grassroots, very focused way of doing it. I'm trying to meet authors where they are. Um, so you'll find more out about me, those three things, both my work as a publisher and my imprint like Drive Books, my, my literary agency, and also my book, Lost Faith and Wandering Souls. Awesome. Well, I got to say, David, it was really great. I mean, just talking about this stuff and kind of getting that, I mean, I think like a different perspective on some of this stuff, because again, when all you're taught is that all that matters is your is your religious outlook, you kind of aren't taught to have categories for like maybe some of the psychological side of things and just kind of like yeah. some of the other ingredients that go into this. So it's, it's always freeing. helpful. It is. It is freeing. And it's also, it, it just, it helps make more sense of things. You know, like maybe the answer to, to a lot of problems is not, oh, well, men are always sinful. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But like, are there other ways of, of, of looking through, you know, at, at looking at some of these problems other than just, just the theological implications of things? So right, um, having right. you on, it was really exactly. great. And I really appreciate your time and for making it happen. Uh, it means a lot. Thank you, Tim. It's great to great to be with you. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm sure we'll do it again because I, I do want to get into more of like the hive mind idea of like, you know, psych, uh, um, how people as groups behave psychologically. So I think that could be a great part yeah. too. Oh, cool. Let's talk about it. Sounds okay. good. Talk to you soon.